Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano. Today, we have another crossover episode with our sister show, Asian Enough. It's Thanksgiving week, so we want to give you food. And in this episode, hosts Johanna Buya and Tracy Brown talk with chef and recipe whiz Sola El Whaley. She's great with cooking videos for outlets like the History Channel's Ancient Recipes, Bon Appetit's Test Kitchen, and so, so much more. El Whaley also writes a column at Food 52, is writing a cookbook, and she's a contributor to the cooking section at some other paper that calls itself The Times and is based out in the East Coast. You might have heard of it. I forget its name, actually. Enjoy! I'm one of your hosts, Johanna Buya. And I'm your other host, Tracy Brown. We're joined by chef and recipe whiz, Sola L. Whaley. Sola, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. To get started, you're a classically trained chef. You have experience running and working in various restaurants. You work in food media. Um, but I'm very curious about how your whole food journey started. I know you grew up in the San Fernando Valley your parents owned a Baskin Robbins, which sounds a lot like every kid's dream. <laughs> <laughs> but can you tell us about your earliest food memories and is growing up with an ice cream shop as amazing as it kind of sounds like? Well, my parents actually still have the Baskin Robbins. But yeah, growing up in an ice cream store was a lot of fun because I loved hanging out in the back and just trying to decorate cakes. Usually they weren't good enough and my mom would scrape off the icing and redecorate, but I got a lot of practice in, which I, I loved that. I loved playing with the sprinkles, but I was actually allergic to dairy as a kid, so I couldn't eat the ice cream until I grew up. Oh my <laughs> God, that's like a six word nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom thought it was like very ironic that I was surrounded by ice cream, but I could have the sorbet. Sorbet is delicious. But yeah, I think my earliest memories with food were I can still smell the back room of the Baskin Robbins, like the freezer smell that like permeates my brain. And my mom's cooking. My mom is a very, very I know everyone says their mom is the best cook, but my mom actually is, I, I swear. Even though my mom worked full time, she would come home every night and make like a full traditional Bangladeshi spread. We were not a leftover family. <laughs> Everything was like from scratch. And if there wasn't like at least five things on the table, it didn't feel like we were having dinner. <laughs> So it was always like we had the core staples, path and dal, a couple of like vegetable bhajis. I think one of my favorites as a kid was okra sauteed with like mustard seeds and onion. I also really, really just loved any kind of like spinach, like sauteed spinach with a little bit of nigella, stuff like that. And then like some kind of stewed thing, like a little stewed fish, stewed chicken. And that's what we had most of the time. But my mom was like very experimental with food. So sometimes it would get a little bit crazy. Like she loved fish balls, but then she would put them in like korma. <laughs> like she'd get like the Korean frozen fish balls and then put it in a korma or she'd get like dumplings and then put it in like a jalfrezi sauce. So she did a little bit of her own fusion all the time. So like I ate a lot of different kinds of Asian food. Yeah, that's so funny because I'm half Bangladeshi, but I'm also half Filipina and my mom is the Filipino one and the cook of the family. So she would always combine Bengali and Filipino cuisine in some way, shape or form. And so I like have had fishball curry. And I feel like that's so specific to me, but I'm, it's like so funny that your mom also made something similar. Um, you mentioned that you were only allowed to do salt and pepper cooking because your mom felt like it was like the most low stakes things. Usually she would have like a lot more spices and sauces and things like that. At what point 
did you graduate from salt and pepper cooking and realize like, oh, I'm actually good at this? When I'm in my mom's kitchen, she still keeps me in the salt and pepper zone. (laughs) (laughs) Like the only time I'm allowed to like totally be alone in the kitchen is if I'm making American or European food. But if there's anything with complicated spices or seasonings, even to this day, my mom will be there tasting alongside me, telling me to add more cumin and I put too much turmeric. She thinks I put too much turmeric in everything. (laughs) I think it's like one of the things we always fight about. And I'm like, I love it though. It's so vibrant. And she's like, no, too much. I think that's like one of those things when your mom will never think that you're grown up. You know what I mean? The first things she let me cook were um, raitha and salad. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's no cooking involved. It was just seasoning. But um, I think it's a really great place to start because I would like add a little bit of cumin and black salt and then she'd taste it and I'd taste it and then she'd tell me what it needed and then we'd taste it at every single step after adding each layer of flavor and I feel like I learned so much about how to season by just standing in the kitchen and making raitha with my mom. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned the turmeric. I don't know if you'd eat with your hand when you were growing up, but like we would eat with my hand at home. And like if your fingernails weren't yellow after your meal, then like there wasn't enough turmeric in your meal. Like it's definitely not Bangladeshi enough. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Are there other things that have like stuck with you from cooking with your mom? Like when you go to school for cooking, I feel like it is very different than like what you learn at home. I'm currently like working on a cookbook and I'm the first section is how I learned how to cook. So I've been thinking about this a lot because I think I worked with a lot of like fancy chefs and I've eaten at a lot of different places, but I think like the majority of my lessons came from my mom and my aunt and they both had really different perspectives. So from my mom, I learned a lot about like being kind of free in the kitchen. Like her favorite thing to do was to get an ingredient that she'd never used before and just like play with it. And she loved to cook all different kinds of cuisines. And it was really fun being in the valley because you got everything. Like our favorite thing to do together was we would just go to like a different grocery store and she'd just like grab different ingredients and come home and play around with it. We'd go to a Korean grocery store or we'd go to like an Iranian grocery store or Japanese grocery store and just like try different things and come home and cook. And I feel like that's like a really big part of how I cook. Like a lot of experimentation and a lot of technique. Like my mom is super, super focused on technique. Like she's going to be like, you must cut the potatoes like this for this fish stew or everything is wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? I learned really specific things about the importance of knife cuts, the importance of seasoning, the importance of like preheating your pan and taking care of your cast iron. I learned all that stuff from my mom. And then my aunt, she, well, she's my auntie. So we're not blood related, but you know how in the community, everyone's your aunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and when my mom would work late, I'd always go over to her house and she was super into Martha mm. Stewart. And that's where I learned a lot about classic American dishes. Like my favorite thing to do with her was like bake chocolate chip cookies and make a, ooh, one thing that she loved was making trifles. She had a bunch of different like trifle dishes and she'd like layer the cream and jello cubes. And like, so I learned more about like Americana classic kind of dishes from her. And I feel like it's still a really important part of the way I like to cook and think about food. I, I love the American classics and I, I learned it all from my Mili auntie, who's also <laughs> Bangladeshi, but she has a, like this passion for like jello that I still have. <laughs> That's so funny. I like I don't think I've ever had trifle and I don't think I've ever seen like anyone on the Bangladeshi side of my family eat jello. Like now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> 
I mean, like, it's clear, it's clear you love food. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to study economics? Well, I never really wanted to go to college. I didn't even want to graduate high school. It was something that they really had to um, drag me through. But I just, I knew I couldn't do what I wanted to do until I got that college degree for them. And I actually, um, I had such a hard time with it. I dropped out after the first year and just like disappeared for a while and then came back and finished it after a couple of years. And I just wanted to get the hell out of there because I just like hated it. But I'm really glad that I have that degree because I think there are a lot of things you learn in college that's useful for, you know, every career, like knowing how to write a resume, write emails, just communicate professionally. So I guess I, I got a lot out of college, but I hated every second of it. The whole time I worked in restaurants, side jobs, you know, I worked in cafes and every single chain restaurant. <laughs> uh, yeah, I read you worked at a cheesecake factory and I'm, I'm very curious, like how did that affect your desire to cook? Well, I was actually just a hostess there, but I just like, I loved being in restaurants. I initially worked a lot of front of house, so hostess, busing, server. A lot of times when you're a girl, I mean, it's changing now, but when you're a girl, they just want to put you in the front, but I wanted to be in the back. So I didn't get into the back of house until I actually had to do the thing they all tell you to do. Like I printed out like a whole stack of resumes and I walked up and down Ventura Boulevard and I applied to every single restaurant. I just went knocking door to door and like 99% of the chefs were like, a girl like you should just be in the front. Oh my God. Or like... Some people even said, a girl like you should just go get married. What? This was a different time where you couldn't get called out on social media. So people said what they felt. (laughs) Uh, My first back of house job was actually as a dishwasher in a pub. The owner of that pub was just like, everyone he hired was, it was like a cast of misfits. You know what I mean? He gave everyone a chance. He actually started out as a bouncer before he went on to buy the pub. So I started out as a dishwasher, but like he really believed in me and he let me work on the line and I ended up working like breakfast services and he helped me write my um, application for culinary school. And it took a long time, but I think you really need someone to believe in you so you can believe in yourself. Yeah. So that like once I met that owner, um, I felt like I could do this. And that's when I wanted to pursue like the fancy fine dining restaurants. And once I came to New York, It was also really hard to get an internship, but I had to just do a lot of trails until someone would give me a chance, you know? Yeah. And as someone who is Asian, but also Bangladeshi and not a doctor or an engineer, I'm still to this day getting questions about like, when are you going to like go back to law school or something like that? Yeah, I get those too. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) how did you tell your family you wanted to become a chef and what was their reaction to that? Um, You know, I, I finally decided to go for it from like a place of sadness. I was just really, really, really depressed. I didn't like the way my life was. And I really just had to make a decision that I need to do this for me. Because up until like that point, I just did things for my family, you know? Like, you you know what it's like, there's like a lot of pressure. You feel like everybody's putting their hopes and dreams on you. Mm. And from a young age, I really struggled with depression and stuff like that. And then one day I was just like, I can't, I'm not going to ever feel better if I keep doing the same thing. I got to just do this for me. And we didn't talk for a very long time, Um, Mm. but I, I had to do it. I felt like I needed to do it to save my life. I commend you on that because it's, it's so hard. When I was in college, I studied chemistry, 
which you wouldn't believe now, but it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, like you should be a doctor or some sort of scientist. So that's what you go do. Um, or I thought it was like, sure, I can do that. But I was so unhappy, but I didn't know how to express it. So I definitely was self-sabotaging. Like I can look back and go, oh, I was trying to flunk out of school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I totally feel like that. I was like, I was doing stupid stuff like, getting into like random vandalism <laughs> and, you know, like just throwing plates in an empty parking lot because I was so angry and frustrated. I love to get like the Ikea plates and just break them. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Like I need to figure out how to deal with this. But I, I just think I was feeling really trapped, um, trapped under the weight of the expectations and I had to just get away. You've obviously attained a great deal of success have your parents come around? I mean, how do they feel about it now? I don't think they know what I do for a living still. I don't know if you have this with your parents, oh, yeah. but every time we talk, they're like, do you need money for rent? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm okay now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, basically the only time they like fully, fully are like on board with every, not my parents really, but the rest of my family, like they're fully on board with what I'm doing is when I'm like, on TV. They're like, oh, oh, that's what you do. MSNBC. Cool. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about having this conversation because I've really wanted to talk about how food intersects with culture for the longest time, you know, because it's one of the more tangible ways that people are exposed to different cultures. And I'm curious, how has food played a role in your own perception of your identity and your connection to your identity? I mean, I think food is my entire identity. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I think about it and I get so emotional because I like feel like I just wanted to be around food and I like did it. Mm -hmm. I'm just like in it. My husband's a chef. All my friends are chefs. We, Our entire apartment is kitchen. <laughs> like our bedroom is pantry. Like there's dried chilies in our sock drawer, you know, blenders and tools everywhere. And like, I love that. It brings me so much comfort to be like surrounded by food. And it's not just the food I ate growing up. It's just like, I think it's everything. Like, I feel like the only way I've been able to connect with people is through food. Like it's the main way. Like when I'm around someone that I don't really know and it's like awkward and uncomfortable, if we just talk about food, we like, it's cool. It's like, you can have a conversation like you know each other, like your family, as soon as you start talking about, hey, what's your favorite dinner? Anyone can get into that. And I think that's really cool. Do you feel like food has connected you to your Bangladeshi identity as well? Or do you think it's just because it's all of who you are, it kind of all falls under that category? You know, it's weird. I I don't think of myself as Bangladeshi. I think of myself as Bangladeshi American. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the Bangladeshi food that I, I ate growing up, but it's about like all of the food I ate growing up. Like I had a lot of friends whose moms also made incredible food. So I grew up eating a lot of like Filipino food and Korean food and Cambodian food and Vietnamese food. So for me, it's like all of it. And I think that's what's great about growing up in this country because you can be around all of it. So I don't feel like I'm just Bangladeshi in a lot of ways. You've mentioned in interviews, I think, how earlier in your career you didn't want to get pigeonholed into brown cooking or mm -hmm. typecast as like a quote-unquote brown chef. But can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what does that mean for you in regards to your food and cooking? Well, I think that a lot is changing over the last year, but in food media, especially like a lot of my first jobs in food media, the only thing anybody of the editors wanted from me was to make Bangladeshi food. 
which I found really frustrating because like my base knowledge is French and I've worked in like Italian and modern food and like my entire life experience of food gets boiled down to the color of my skin and my features and that's like super frustrating because I I white chefs have this freedom that they can just become an expert in whatever they want and they're accepted as an expert in whatever cuisine they're like passionate about, whatever they're drawn to. And I feel like when you're a person of color, it's just like, well, you must write about chat. You must know all about chat. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, I really like chat, but I'm also really into chili rellenos because <laughs> I'm from LA. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so um, I just wish we could be more our whole selves, you know? Yeah, I mean, Tracy, I don't know if you feel this way too, but I feel like as a person of color in journalism, especially someone who's like explicitly Muslim, right? Like I feel like I faced that my whole life. I think when I got my first job, someone literally was like, well, I was covering media. And they're like, why aren't you covering Muslim topics? I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know why I needed to cover Muslim topics just because I am Muslim. And I obviously one side of it is like, well, we don't have enough people who are covering this, who are like are knowledgeable Mm -hmm. about the topic. Um, That said, like, it doesn't have to be the thing that I do, right? And that expectation is really frustrating. How have people reacted when you've like pushed back on those expectations? So in the beginning, it was really difficult and it was really hard to push back. It's different now because I have more... I don't like this word, but I guess the word is influence. It's very weird. Like in the last few months, if I pitch something, people will be like, okay. And like, I've never in my life have people just said okay to anything that I've ever wanted to do. Like I've had to fight tooth and nail for like every single idea or recipe or anything that I've ever wanted to do. So it's like changed dramatically very quickly. But before it was, I really did have to like fight. I had to like constantly push back editors and there's a lot of tension. <laughs> and and I don't know, I had to like stand my ground, you know, like I'll do this Bangladeshi recipe, but let me do this other one too. Sometimes you just have to like make deals like that, which sucks because I should be able to make whatever I'm really caring about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned your mom cooked a variety of cuisines when you were growing up. You were exposed to a variety of cuisines. You have like a specialty in French cooking. Um, But you also talked about like how your mom was like really technically adept at cooking. Um, Mm -hmm. I know you're like, I do a lot of other things too, but Mm -hmm. how much do you think the Bangladeshi influence has on your cooking right now? Well, you know, when you go to culinary school and work in fine dining, it's pretty European. And um, I think that can be really limiting because there are a lot of techniques that are in other parts of the world that don't show up in European cuisine at all. Like one thing is puna. I guess the closest English translation is stew, but it's not at all like an American stew because with an American stew, you usually start by browning things. You brown meat and you brown vegetables, but here you're caramelizing spices. That's your base. That's a really common technique in a lot of Asian cuisine. Like when you're making a curry paste, you start by like caramelizing the curry paste. For like puna, you start by caramelizing the spices with aromatics. So like there's a lot of techniques like that, that I feel like if you only focus on European cuisine, you're just going to miss out on. And they just great ways to develop flavor. Like, let's learn all of the ways to develop flavor. Why the hell not? You mentioned, like, the European focus. Like, am I wrong? Like, when I was looking up what it means to be classically trained, Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, like, it means you have, like, French technique training. And I'm like, is that the only way that you can be classically trained? Is if you know French food techniques? Yes. Being (laughs) classically trained does mean French. 
all of the mainstream like culinary schools, like the basis French technique, the program I went to was a two-year program and it was almost all French with some American, some Italian, and then we spent three weeks on all of Asia, which I thought was ridiculous. Like all of Asia, we had like one day, everything about Japanese food. <laughs> like, this is nuts. One day, everything about Chinese food. I found it very disappointing because there's so many cool techniques throughout the globe and I want to learn as much as possible about all of them. Do you have a favorite Bangladeshi meal or recipe to cook or eat? Well, okay, so my favorite, favorite thing is chat which I know is super broad and can be so many things, but like that combo of flavors, the the funky, the salty, the sweet, the spicy, the tangy, like all together, I could eat that all day, every day on everything. I can turn anything into a chat. My favorite thing is to just like take any like really good veggie, like a baby zucchini, uh, some good tomatoes, or even just like really good fruit and then to cover it in a little, like a little bit of yogurt, some cilantro, some green chilies, some chaat masala, and then crunchy stuff from the pantry, you know, like crushed potato chips. That's mm-hmm. like my favorite thing. And I know it's not strictly Bengali. It's like throughout South Asia, but that's probably my favorite food. And I think it's my favorite food because it's my dad's favorite food too. Every single day when he came home from work, before he even took off his shoes, which is a big deal because we're a shoeless family. <laughs> he would make a chat with whatever he could find, like cereals and different veggies and then just add like slivers of ginger and garlic and like make this delicious thing. And then he would take off his shoes and enjoy it. And yeah, that's my favorite thing. I could eat it every day. I love chutpati, like classic, traditional Bengali chutpati. Tracy, have you ever had like any chat? It's like life-changing. It's very refreshing too, no. but like somehow <laughs> like really filling. But like, it's like a big street food too in Bangladesh. And so, yeah, it's like always like an experience mm-hmm. having chat. And my family literally will always make it anytime I go visit them in Texas. So I'm I'm a big fan too. Whenever we would fly to Bangladesh, like the first thing we do upon landing is get the pani puri, which um, yeah. for the listeners who don't know, you must experience this glory. It's like a crispy semolina ball with like potatoes and chickpeas. And then they have this tamarind, mint, spicy, sweet water that fills up the balls and you pop it in your mouth. And it's like an explosion of amazing. But like it is made with, water. So oftentimes you get sick immediately after you land, but it's so worth it. (laughs) (laughs) All this talk is fascinating for me because like my mom's from Japan. So when you like mentioned curry, like my frame of reference for curry is Japanese Mm -hmm. curry, which is not at all Mm -hmm. like curry, (laughs) the original. (laughs) I think Japanese curry is so interesting because it has so much French influence too from the the long cooked roux. I was recently working on a recipe for um, etouffee, which has like a roux base. And then the other day we were just making Japanese curry and we were like, whoa, the bases are so similar. How did this much French technique end up in Japan? Did you find out? No, I need to do some research and figure it out because I think that's really cool. Okay, I was going to say, I would love to know. (laughs) I want to know more. I need to hit up a historian. Tracy's like Googling it right now. I kind of want to because it's like a shock when you go, like when I went to Indian food for the first time and right, there's like curry there. I'm like, oh, I'm like, this is not at all like anything I grew up with. (laughs) Well, that's why that word is so annoying because it's like, it's so many things. We'll be back after this break.
Now here's more of Tracy and Johanna's conversation with chef and writer Sola Whaley. We've talked a little bit about like your joys and your personal connection to food, but we do want to talk a little bit about some of like the challenges you face in this industry. Like you've been vocal about some of the obstacles you faced, everything from sexism and discrimination to pay inequities at Bon Appetit. Was there ever a moment that you considered like stepping back entirely because of some of these obstacles that you faced? Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of obstacles in restaurants. Um, and I had a really hard time adjusting to the obstacles in food media. When I first got into it, I didn't know if I was going to be able to stay. Um, in restaurants, it's like really straightforward, old school sexual harassment. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can see that coming from a mile away. You know how to deal with that. And and the racism is always very like blunt. You know, it's it's easier to deal with that kind of stuff because it's very obvious. And I feel like with food media, it was a lot more like, it was just really subtle. And I didn't understand what was happening at first. And after my first job in food media, I was thinking of not doing it anymore. But I, I don't know. I don't know why I pushed forward, but I almost like fully gave up. I guess it's good I kept going and it worked out. But it's different because I feel like with food media, there's a lot of issues with class as well. Because a lot of food media is for, a lot of the people who work in food media are wealthy. And it's from that perspective. So I was facing more of like this classism and racism that I hadn't felt before. Because I don't feel like there's as much of that in restaurants. Because restaurants, there are a lot of people from different backgrounds all working in the same place. And you can come from like a really lower income background and become a chef, like it happens a lot. Like that's Gordon Ramsay. He didn't come from wealth or anything. He built this whole life for himself. But in food media, there really isn't anyone who isn't already pretty upper class that's in there. So that was like a new thing that I had never felt before. And yeah, I really like struggled with those. <laughs> with just feeling like I was constantly being like talked down to. And that's the first time I really experienced a lot of microaggressions because in kitchens, it's just aggression. And like with microaggressions, someone says something to you and then it takes you a minute and you're like, whoa, that was racist, but they're already gone. <laughs> and I don't know how to like, I don't know what to say now because they're out of the room and it took me too long to process what just happened. So yeah, I, I did struggle to stay in the industry, but now I feel firmly rooted and like I have some like power and I want to use it for good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I've definitely had those conversations or like been like confronted with racism and then like just like been in shock and then like walked away and like, you know what? This is what I should have said. Like, I would have really won mm -hmm. that conversation if I said this. But yeah, I mean, it's like pretty well known that, like you said, the food and restaurant industry is a man's world. And there was a vulture profile um, about you by Alex Jung, which mentions like, quote unquote, casual chauvinism, like that was mm -hmm. like the rule of kitchens. Can you paint for our listeners a picture of what that actually means and what that looks like? I mean, I, it's people touch you. Mm. You can't really do anything about it. It's like very obvious, like people touch you, people say things to you. It's like certain people you just know you don't want to end up in a walk-in with alone. Uh, it's just really blunt and obvious. And it's crazy that we all put up with it. And we all just think that this is just how it's supposed to be. And I think it's changing a lot, like, because there's more and more women in the space. There's more and more women and there's more and more people of color. Like, the only way to really make changes, there just needs to be more of us everywhere. 
and then it'll get better. But I, I worked in a lot of restaurants before I went to culinary school and I dealt with that kind of stuff. And then the first time I really spoke up about it was when I was in culinary school because it happened with a dean. And then I was like, what the f This is culinary school. This is supposed to be a safe space. And yeah. the, I went to talk to the female dean about it. And then she was like, oh, it's just what happens. You should get used to it. And I was like, I know it happens, but I thought that this could be a place where I could focus on my like education, you know, and not yeah. worry about stuff like that. But yeah, in restaurants, it's like, it's obvious. It's like, in some ways, it makes it easier to avoid it, you know? In media, I felt like I was really out of my depth because it was just so subtle and it was so sneaky and it just felt really insidious and I just couldn't even put my finger on what was happening at first. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of like the nature of microaggressions, right? It's just like, am I like going nuts or mm -hmm. did that like racist thing happen? Like, why do I feel so bad in this moment? And it's like, just not very clear. But you did, like, I think it was the same profile where you talked about that you felt like you were treated as a maid at Serious Eats and, like, you're mm -hmm. talking about class. And, like, by that point, you had worked at so many, like, renowned restaurants. You had started your own restaurant. Like, does that not translate into food media for everyone or is it just people of color? I, I think that what can be frustrating about food media is I don't think it's about your experience, like you can have a lot of experience as a chef and be a really like proficient chef and teacher, but a lot of it is just about networking and coming from the right background. And I mean, it was my first time being around people who were all like from a certain class and had like a certain kind of education and background. So it's really easy to just be like pushed into a corner. I don't know, you've heard me talk. I talk like talk like a regular person, you know? <laughs> so being around people who are all like Harvard educated, I can't even like keep up. And I think a really big thing with Asian people is that we are vampires and we never age. So everybody always thinks you're 16. So it's very easy to be infantilized. You can have the most experience in the room, yeah. but it's very easy for people to talk down to you and diminish you because you have no wrinkles. And we will never have wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like knocking on wood, hopefully. I can't wait till I wrinkle. I want wrinkles and gray hair. I want my experience to show on my face. <laughs> <laughs> but like I can relate to that though, because for the longest time, even at the times, I feel like because of what I cover, like I normally cover entertainment, which is like movies and TV shows and stuff like that. And because I'm Asian and don't age at the same rate as other people, I'm like, oh, everyone in this room thinks I'm a child. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think that like social media helps a little bit. You know, the perception of readers is probably that I'm like much older and taller than I am. But like for sure in person, I think people are shocked. They're like, oh, like, are you 16? Like, I could be, who knows? That's part <laughs> of my mystery. <laughs> but yeah, so like, again, you talked about like some of the roots of a lot of this. Like, I think class is an issue with media broadly, right? Like there is a lot of class privilege. A lot of people, for example, like are able to have those unpaid internships earlier on that helps mm -hmm. them get those connections and get their feet in the door. What else do you sort of attribute those sort of like broader discrimination and sexism that's so rampant in the food industry to? I mean, it's just been happening for a long time with no accountability. So why is anything going to change? So the only way to change is accountability and we just need more of us in there, you know? I appreciate you mentioning that because I don't think any media companies were really exempt to have these sort of like internal reckonings or, you know, re-examinations of how 
people of color have been treated within the industry, both in coverage, but also within our company itself? Like, do you think the conversations have changed, I guess, like more recently? Have you noticed a change in how we talk about these things? Yeah, I definitely think there's a change. And um, it does seem like there's more diversity in the kind of people that are getting work and getting a voice and getting to present their perspectives. But I don't think the top has changed. But I mean, we can start from the bottom. We're resilient. We'll get to the top. But we need to get to the top for any real change to happen. I just like feel lucky that for some weird reason these days when I say something, people are listening to me. So I'm just trying to say the right thing. And like speak up in meetings where I think it could help. Like with the the shows I'm working on, if there's something that doesn't feel right, if I feel like we need more diversity on the crew, like I feel like I have the ability to have some influence over those little things. So I'm going to do that. If it means I can get like one person of color on a crew, I think that's cool. It's mm-hmm. a place to start, you know? We all just have to start somewhere. And I think that, it can feel overwhelming because it feels like we've got so far to go, but we do, and we just have to keep going, and it'll be fine. We'll be back after this break. And now the conclusion of our conversation with Sola Whaley. You have talked about cultural appropriation in the past. You also talked about in this conversation, like how a lot of white chefs do have the freedom to do all kinds of cuisines, whereas like people of color really don't. As we talked about earlier, food and culture are just like so intrinsically tied together. And it seems that this is the case, but do you feel like food media kind of incentivizes and like sometimes rewards white chefs who sort of parachute into different cuisines without having like a real cultural tie to it? I think they did before. I feel like it's changed very dramatically since last summer. But I, you know, it's, I don't have a problem with white chefs making other food. I think that that's fine because I want to make other food too. I think that at the core of it is just like give everything respect. You know, we give pasta a lot of respect. Pasta, you can easily spend $30 on a pasta dish. Um, we all know the names of the shapes. We all know how to sauce a pasta, but like when you go have dumplings, you need a basket of dumplings for $4. Like why? Why doesn't a dumpling that takes just as much skill, I think arguably more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why doesn't it get the same respect? So I think everyone can make whatever they want, but I think do your research, treat it with respect. Don't like make something that's obviously a curry and call it a stew and act like you invented it. (laughs) That's what I mean. That's when it becomes cultural appropriation. Like I worked at a place called Pock Pock and it's owned by a white male chef, Andy Ricker. It's Northern Thai cuisine, but I don't think it's cultural appropriation because he's dedicated his whole life to learn about this food. He speaks the language. He doesn't even call himself a chef or a cook, but he calls himself a student and he gives credit to all of the people in Thailand who taught him how to cook. And he even employs Thai people and like sponsors them to come to this country and like helps them get apartments. Like he's doing it the right way. Like I think you can be a white chef who makes other food and like be really respectful and make it not be appropriation. And I appreciated you mentioning like the respect aspect of it because I do think pop culture, like food media especially has centered certain perspectives of how we 
think and talk about food, right? Like the title Bizarre Foods has always bothered me. Like Mm -hmm. who gets to decide what's bizarre? (laughs) I hate that show. Oh my, what, is it still running? I, I think it's just reruns, but sometimes I'll like see it scrolling through like a channel guide and I'll be like, why do we still call this bizarre? <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a good segue into our quick lightning round called, is it cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation? <laughs> and go through foods or recipes that might be appropriation and have you weigh in. And first up, we have Sabra chocolate flavored hummus. Appropriation or appreciation? Can we just call that an abomination? Yeah, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody eat that. That shouldn't exist. (laughs) I don't even really get like why, who decided that like, like we already have chocolate dip. Like we have so many Mm -hmm. versions of like chocolate stuff and like hummus is really beautiful and good on its own. Like why did we need to combine the two? No, that that was just like, they just went too far, you know? (laughs) Everybody loves hummus and they were like, let's see, let's break into the dessert market. They're just being greedy. Just stick with like roasted garlic, lemon, like the Sabra flavors, you know? (laughs) What about like pumpkin spice is everything. There's definitely a pumpkin spice hummus. (laughs) No. No, no, no. I don't, I don't like that. Can we add a third category that's just abomination? Yes. (laughs) Appropriation, appreciation, abomination. Uh So this is one I've always thought about uh, like, as a kid who grew up around a lot of, like, chain restaurants. What is Asian chicken salad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is an Asian chicken salad? What is that? That is appropriation, right? Because there's nothing Asian about it. They just wanted to throw some wontons on there mm-hmm. and make it sound exotic. There's, like, sesame in their dressing, I think. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, look how Asian this is. But I feel like the dish has no roots in true... Like, well, also, first, what's Asian? Yeah. Like, which yeah. Asia? <laughs> which which Asia? <laughs> and then, like, there's no dish like that outside of California Pizza Kitchen. Or I yeah. think Wolfgang Puck invented that. I think that's a Wolfgang Puck original. I always remember, like, the mandarin orange segments. I'm like, why does this make it mm-hmm. Asian? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a friend who, uh, her, she's Thai, and her biggest pet peeves is when um, people put peanuts in something. <laughs> and they call it pad thai. Like it'll be yeah. spaghetti with some peanuts. Pad thai. <laughs> <laughs> you already mentioned the stew, which was a big thing that like I took issue with as someone who like actually consumed the real stew growing up. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one really set me off too. <laughs> so for our listeners, the chef Allison Roman released a chickpea stew recipe for the New York Times and it went viral and everyone was calling it the stew. Everyone was making it. But it's basically like a desi curry recipe. So your issue with it, though, is that she claimed it as her own and didn't really give any credit to where it actually came from, correct? Yeah. I mean, if she wants to make that recipe, great. But like, be honest. Tell us where your influence come from. You didn't just like, that didn't just pop into your brain out of nowhere. Just like put a little bit of context behind the dish in your head note and be a little bit thoughtful with your title. And that's it. Keep making it. That's fine. Just don't call it that. Yeah. And then also chai tea as a concept, appropriation or appreciation. This was a little complicated for me. (laughs) I have some feelings about chai tea. Okay, I know a lot of people get upset because they're like, you're just saying tea tea. But I feel like in the US, there's just so many different cultures and cuisines that sometimes you need to 
say chai tea to separate it from like matcha or southern sweet tea or you know what I mean so I feel like it's just about grounding it and making it easier for a lot of people to understand but like I get why people don't like it and they just want to call it chai but also I grew up calling it cha (laughs) so same my husband is white and so like I've introduced him to cha but like he has gone on his whole life calling things chai. So I have been calling it chai just Mm -hmm. to like get him like comfortable with it. And like, but now he's like gone the complete other way. And if I call it chai, he'll get mad at me. He's like, that is not what it's called. Like, how dare you like, (laughs) like insult our culture. I'm like, our culture, homie, you just got here. (laughs) Like, this is not ours. (laughs) Well, I also feel like chai tea has become its own thing, almost like pumpkin spice latte. Because I've never had like a chai tea, like quote unquote, like from Starbucks or Trader Joe's that tastes anything like cha. Because it's all cinnamon. It's just pumpkin spice latte with tea. Yes. So I'd love to keep playing this game, but we do have a few more questions for you. We've talked a little bit about the obstacles you faced. How have these experiences shaped how you think about what you want to do in the future? Well, you know, it's kind of like... Everything that has happened to you or you've experienced all leads you to where you are. So I feel like grateful for all of the experiences, even though sometimes, you know, sometimes I just want to sit and be sad, but other times I find it to be like motivating. I want to get to a place where I can like eventually help bring up other people of color with interesting backgrounds and perspectives. That's like the long-term goal because the only way things are going to get better is if there's more of us in these positions where we can talk and we are being listened to. So like, that's the main thing that I think about, you know? Not there yet, but I think if we keep thinking about, you know, it's like the secret. You put it out there and it'll happen. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you've talked about all the limits that you faced over the course of your career, but I mean, what does a role without limits look like for you? Like, what is your dream job in food media right now? And and does it exist? Dream job in food media? For me, at this point, I would really like to become a producer and help other people find their voice because I think I've talked enough now <laughs> and I want to hear what other people have to say. And I, and I hope we can get to a place where there's fewer obstacles for other women and people of color and, you know, big lofty goals. But you can start by helping one person write a pitch, (laughs) you know what I mean? Wherever you can start, I guess. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, another food episode before Thanksgiving, this time a conversation with food writer and chef Alison Roman. Asian Enough is produced by Asala Sanapur and Hiba El-Orbani. It's engineered by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Julia Turner. The Asian Enough podcast is dedicated to the memory of founding producer Lina Anwar. The Times is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us Tapuchia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>